Hello and welcome to another edition of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. My name is Jeff Shane, specialty editor at the Daily Sun. With me as always, Drew Schaltry, back from an eventful couple of days in Jacksonville at the State Track and Field Championships, where we have VHS crowning a fifth state champion in its school history and Wildwood also performing pretty well and a lot of raindrops in between, I suppose. But uh, Drew, good to have you back. We will talk high school sports here in the first segment to recap the track, talk a little bit about the spring games that have taken place. Uh, we will talk golf in the second segment as Brooks Kepka returns to being big game Brooks and uh, now joins a very special pantheon with his fifth major championship. And at the uh, end, we will talk about the start of the season for the Villages Soccer Club. They get their season underway this weekend against Tampa Bay United as they have a little bit of chip on their shoulder looking to get back to the top of their division. But let's go back to the high schools, Drew. Like I say, a very eventful couple of days, a very busy couple of days, but great work in covering those uh, championships. And we talked about it and we talked about it a lot in the newsroom we talked about it you know kind of in the intro but the villages high school doesn't get a ton of state champions but they have their fifth now in their 20-year history yeah they had a, a pretty good showing at what was a, a really competitive 2A state meet and Kaylee Sosnowski uh, as you alluded to brings home that gold medal she uh, again, as you said, is the fifth ever state champion from the Villages High School. They're still looking for that first ever team championship, but five individuals now that can say that they were the best athlete in their sport or their event in the state. So that was pretty cool to see. And um, a lot of credit to her. She's a multi-sport athlete. She hasn't been doing track and field that long, but a really, really uh, took to the javelin, puts in a lot of work, ran with the relay teams this year as well, uh, and, and the coaches could not say enough good things about her. So really cool to see a kid like that succeed. And when she got up with that javelin throw, it was one of those. Sometimes you just know when when it leaves the hand, yeah. and you kind of know what you're about to see. And that was one where she let it go, and I was standing next to the throwing coach and the running coach, and all three of us just went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, You knew it was going to be a good one. And if it hadn't been for... Sonoma Kasika of Stonecrest the night before she actually would have been very close to the state record with her mark she threw 4304 uh, Sonoma the night before threw 4478 so I mean she would have been would have been awfully close to it and, and it was in fact a two a state meet record uh, that she threw uh, Kaylee Sosnowski with that 4304 so pretty cool moment. Uh, her name goes into the VHS record books, goes into the 2A track and field record, record books. So uh, all around, really, really cool to see her pull off something like that. Now, you, you, you said what the reaction of the of the coaches were when they saw the javelin leave her hand, when she saw where it landed, and maybe when she saw that she had won a state title, what was her reaction? Well, I think that she was impressed with herself a little bit. You you could see the reaction from her that she's like, oh, that went far. Like, <laughs> um, so I think she knew that she'd you know, thrown a career best right there. So obviously there was some excitement right there. The state title part, I don't think was necessarily a, a huge excitement in the moment. She came in as the first seed with a pretty good margin. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that for her, it was more about 
getting that personal best. You want to end on your best throw of the year type of thing. And I think that was really what excited her the most. And obviously she was excited to get the gold medal. And when I was talking to her afterwards and the historical perspective going, you know, into that FHSAA record book and also at VHS, she's going to have a banner there forever. Uh, that was something that I think kind of hit her afterwards. Um, and, and she was, you know, a little bit emotional and, and pretty excited about that prospect. Once you kind of realize everything that comes with winning that. Exactly. And, yeah. and so, and you mentioned she's a very versatile athlete, uh, was almost a two-time state almost. champion this yeah. year. Yeah. And she, she did mention that when I talked to her, there was a lot of bitterness after the state weightlifting meet. She went in wanting that gold medal. That's a sport that she's done since she was a freshman. It's the one that she's probably invested the most time and effort into. And again, she plays volleyball, she runs track, but weightlifting has kind of been her passion. She's been the emotional leader of that team. She's been a huge part of that program over the last four years. And so that was the one where she went to that state meet this year and was like, I want that gold medal. I'm getting that gold medal and came up just, just, I mean, literally as close Five as you can pounds. come. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and she was still pretty bitter about that one. So she did say that this gold medal takes the sting out a little bit. She wanted to graduate as a champion and she does get to do that. And that, uh, congratulations again to, to Kaylee for doing that. And would, I know that, uh, we, we don't have necessarily our longtime VHS expert here, but, uh, from what you can glean, what, where does Kylie Sosnowski kind of rank in terms of all-time VHS athletes? Oh, man, she's got to be up there. I mean, when you look at the other state champions, you've got Ellis Poplowski, who was also a football player, played on some really, really good VHS football teams. Mm-hmm. Wasn't necessarily the star of those teams, but was a major contributor. So he's got to be up there. Colton and Taylor Jackson, wrestlers, when they went and became the first ever VHS athletes to, to win state titles back in 2013 at the state wrestling meet, that was a pretty cool moment. And Emma Simons in the high jump was a multi-sport athlete as well. She was a runner. She was a jumper. Um, but but Kaylee has to be up there. And especially when you think about the, the context of this year, the 20th year of the school, the last year of the current campus, going out with a moment like that, what she did for the volleyball team this past year, helping lead them to their best season ever, and then the the weightlifting stuff on top of it, a multi-time medalist, a four-year uh, lifter and you know the captain of that team has helped build that program I think that she has to go down as one of the best athletes in the history of VHS and there again there's going to be a banner there to commemorate her for yeah and we would be remiss if we didn't mention Trey Mann and Mac Harris team athletes but uh, uh, those that that have uh, highly achieved in their sports so you you only have one first round NBA draft pick and Mac Harris is a uh, contributor for a uh, for a FBS uh, football program. So a lot of good athletes starting to come yeah. through. And, and you can obviously throw Sam Walters in Sam that group Walters. as well when you talk about contributing to team success. That's, yes. uh, that's as far as any VHS team has ever gone is to that state championship game. So I think he belongs in that conversation as well. A little bit of a springboard to Middleton, I suppose, yeah. as we take a look at uh, some of the facilities that are rising out of the southern expansion of the villages. But let's touch on some of the other really solid performances. A couple of athletes that performed maybe higher than their seed and maybe the one that uh, leads that group is Jason Globig in the 110 hurdles. Yeah, he finished second and he came in right on the cusp of being in the the lower flight. He was seated ninth, so he jumped seven spots and I, I was watching him run that race and he'd been to the state meet before. He's obviously a very, very talented athlete. We talk a lot about him during soccer, but that's also part of the reason that he maybe wasn't expected to perform this way. He doesn't 
get to practice as much as a lot of the other track athletes. He has to train a lot on his own because he plays for the Village's uh, SC2, the UPSL team. Yes. And, uh, they demand a lot of his time over there. He, you know, That's one that you kind of have to be at practice to get your work done. Uh, track and field, you can work a little bit more on your own. But you know, the coaches all season, obviously, they, they see the potential. They see the athleticism. They see the speed. But you kind of wonder, you know, when he gets there, is he going to maximize what he can do because we haven't you know, gotten to work with him as much as we would have liked. And he was a guy that got better and better and better as the season went along, qualified for the state meet, and then running that race, uh, really, really impressive. And there was one guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was way out in front of everybody. <laughs> I mean, with with in within the perspective of a 110 meter race sure, you know yeah. being, being a quarter second ahead is, is a big gap but um you know he was neck and neck with a couple guys and uh just cleared that last hurdle took off and and managed to win it by a hair uh as far as second place goes so really impressive showing from him that was that was really cool to see and sean carr took sixth in the javelin and for a brief moment before some of the uh throwers in the other flight uh, got their second throws going but sean carr briefly led the state championship he did lead the field for a minute <laughs> And I think he ended up about where he should have. It looks like he overperformed based on his seed. I know that he wasn't especially happy with how he threw at the regional meet. So his qualifying mark was good enough to get him in, but it wasn't the kind of uh, throw that he expects from himself so ending up in sixth was good he was in that second flight again so or well the first flight to throw but the lower of the two flights and so he was leading that group had a really good last mark and it, it managed to to hold up for a little while obviously some of those those top athletes in that event got going um, and ended up beating him but a sixth place finish for him another podium uh, that's a good place for him to go out as a senior as well and some medals for the girls relay teams including a third place by the girls four by eight and maybe a sense of a last hurrah for Kaylee Sosnowski, Ella Thomas, Leah Byron. Yeah, that's a, a group that has put in a lot of work, a lot of work, especially uh, when you look at Ella Thomas and uh, and Leah Byron. Those two seniors have kind of been the, the heart and soul, the competitive drive of this team. They kind of set the tone for this group, and we've talked for years about what they do during the regular season, the number of points that they put up in meets, girls taking on extra events to help the team score, and those two are a big part of the reason why, and they run cross country and they kind of work towards this all year and track and field is where they really uh, really get into it get into the competitive spirit of things and they really wanted to, to have a good showing in this race and third place was really good they set a new state uh, new school record uh, which is something that they've done over and over in that event and so for them to go out that way I thought was fitting the two teams that they lost to really really good prep yeah. schools with really <laughs> really good athletes uh, when you talk about Bishop Kenny and Montverde Academy it's not a lot of shame in coming in behind those two teams definitely and, and they not. said that when I when I talked to Leonella afterwards you know uh, you know they were proud to be on a podium next to those teams so a really, really good showing from them uh, and, and a fitting way for them to go out. That's the event that I think they were the most competitive in, the one that they probably worked the hardest on, the one that if I asked them, I bet they would say they cared the most about. Um, and, and so to see them get that third place medal in that one was cool as well. Very definitely. Let's flip over now to the Wildwood side of the state track and field week um, and a little bit of redemption for a quartet of girls who won gold two years ago missed gold last year and now have gold back yeah the four by 100 team for wildwood we've known since a couple of these girls were in eighth grade that they were going to be good for a long time and they won that gold medal two years ago and 
that was that was a huge deal. And then last year, well, we talked about it before, Shaman Madonna drops down, maybe caught them a little bit off guard. Uh, they maybe didn't think they had to work as hard as they did to stay at the front of that field. And so they got that realization. They caught kind of the, the harshest way to find out that you're not the top dogs anymore. So this year they spent a lot of time working on it, perfecting the handoffs, which they thought were part of what cost them in that race uh, a year ago. And um, and really ran one of their better races uh, that I think I've seen them run as a group. They went sub 48, I believe, for the first time ever. So really awesome to see them run arguably their best four by one ever at the state meet. And it's the last time that they're going to get to run it with Kendall Brown. That's a group that has a big question mark now in that second leg coming up for next year. So that's been a really strong group for a long time, but they're going to have to find somebody with that, you know, 11 second speed that they can plug into that spot. And you mentioned Kendall Brown. I was uh, just about to bring her up. This was her third gold medal in state track, seventh medal overall, which makes her one of the most decorated uh, athletes in Wildwood history. Maybe she didn't perform as well as she had hoped on the individual side, but still leaves as somebody with a legacy at Wildwood Athletics. Yeah, she would have liked a couple more gold medals, and she told me that, but she's leaving again with seven. She's won a gold medal three years in a row. There's not a lot of people who can say that they've done that. And I will also say she probably got the worst deal of anybody during the course of the one Amy. We had multiple weather delays, one before the thing even started. They bring the, guy, the kids out eventually for warmups. Uh, they get warmed up and then we get another lightning delay. And that one lasted a couple hours. So at this point it's now four o'clock and they're finally getting out there. They warm up again. They start doing the long jump and she was seated first in that event and in the middle of the long jump she's about to take her last jump and we get another lightning delay man and so she has to go back out wait to do her last jump she knows where she's placed at this point she's currently fifth so she's got one chance to go out and and get her best jump of the day and she scratched i think twice so she she needed a good one on the last one uh, they come back from the lightning delay. She doesn't get a full warm up because they're trying to get girls moved over to triple jump. And it's just her and one other girl that still have to jump. So no warm up. She goes out, gets another jump in, places fifth, goes over to triple jump. But because now we're on this delay, we're doing a rolling schedule in the middle of warming up for the triple jump. She has to go warm up for the four by one, run the four by one, then come back and do the triple jump. And I mean, I just I don't know how you can expect anyone to um, really perform their best in that kind of situation between the delays, the the mental game that you have to deal with in that. And then on top of that, just the exhaustion from doing the jumps, doing the jumps, doing a run, doing the jumps. I mean, it's just it's a lot to put on an athlete, even one as talented as Kendall Brown. So uh, I just I wanted to give some people some context. I know that she was disappointed in her finishes and she didn't try to use the weather as an excuse or anything like that. But she had a really, really tough situation uh, going for her last Wednesday. The untold story behind some of the these performances um, on uh, the individual side we had a pair of fifth place finishes from Wildwood in the Javelin both Emma Strickland and Judson Nichols with good performances yeah it was cool for Judson Nichols to be there sophomore first year throwing ended up being the the one guy from that group who made it through um, you know three of them made it to regionals which is what they had hoped for um, and getting one through to state was a big deal and he threw one of his best throws of the year um, Emma, as also a sophomore, was back at the state meet. She's competed there before. She finished fifth, and I don't think I quite realized until after the rest of the meets had played out how competitive 1A girls javelin is. 
Emma Strickland finished fifth in 1A. She would have also been fifth in 4A, but she would have been third in 2A and first in 3A. <laughs> like That's Crazy. how deep 1A is. So uh, anytime you're looking at some of these meet results and you think, oh, it's, it's just 1A, like there are some events where it is really, really stacked. And we see that in other sports, too, yes. where some of the better schools are actually the small 2A and mm-hmm. 1A schools just because they're maybe more of the academies, more of the the private schools, but a heck of a performance by Emma Strickland and just in the wrong division, I suppose. Well, and again, she's just a sophomore. She's been to the state meet before. She's got a chance. She'll work over the summer. She does AAU um, with Wildwood. So she's going to get better and she's got two more years to do this. And the boys' 4x100 relay probably uh, a little overperformed, but a great finish for them. Yeah, they were in the, the lower of the two heats, so they went first. And, um, you know, they took the took the final handoff in first. Obviously, that's the fastest heat. Ricky Harding, you know, that's a tough task for him. He's worked so hard at the, the sprints this year, trying to prepare for college football this coming fall and really wanted to focus on sprinting this year. They put him on the 100. They put him on the 4x100 team. And he managed to hold off some really competitive runners in that final leg of that flight. Uh, and it got them up into fifth place. And literally by a hundredth of a second, they won that flight. So uh, the difference between fifth and sixth was a hair. Uh, and, and so a great performance by that group getting getting into that position. And that was maybe the one that the Wildwood coaches were the most excited about just because of the expectation versus how that group performed. Yeah, and we should probably mention, too, that Wildwood, their team performance – was among the best. In fact, I think you said it was the second, the girls were the second best among 1A public schools. Uh, Again, talking about that level of competition at at the smaller private schools, but uh, for a public school, Wadwood did very well in Jacksonville. Yeah, the girls were second among public schools. The boys were first among public schools at the 1A meet. So, I mean, there's not much more that they can ask for. Obviously, they want to beat everybody. They they try to beat everybody. They plan to compete with everybody. They know that they're going to see a lot of of 1A schools, and there's no medal for uh, the public school division or something like that, but that is a way that they measure themselves. You know, they don't have the resources they don't have the abilities to offer kids scholarships mm. and uh, tuition and stuff like that that a lot of these uh, you know private schools do and so they they kind of take some pride in saying okay uh, we're on the same playing field you and us so and we're going to beat you and that that means something to them and that's kind of why I wanted to make sure that got out as well. So that's the uh, a very productive week uh, up in Jacksonville with track and field. Uh, we were also uh, dealing with uh, some spring football. The VHS spring football game was the first kind of in our region, and uh, now they're in, in the process of looking ahead to the summer. And I guess the big theme for the Buffalo football team is that they have Kuzorian Kennedy back and what he means to that offense and maybe take a lot of the uh, a lot of the focus off Alvon Isaac. Now they have more of a two-headed attack. Yeah, we've talked about this. What Q Kennedy brings to a team when you're adding him back into the mix is not just adding him and his skill set. It is opening up so much more. It takes pressure off of Alvon, like you just said. It takes pressure off of other guys. It makes the job of the quarterback easier. It makes the job of the offensive line easier. Because if Alvon Isaac's the only option or the only viable option and a team is shutting him down, the offensive line has to block for longer. The quarterback has to find something else going and you don't have as many athletes that are going to win matchups. So when you have Q Kennedy, who also, by the way, plays defense and can play special teams, you're adding 
not just him, but improving the situation for everybody else because you're doubling the depth of top flight options on your offense. So I think that that's a, a huge addition. Obviously, JT wrote about it in the, the spring football recap. He's talked about Q Kennedy. We knew what he meant to the basketball team. We knew when he went down last spring what a big loss it was for this football team. So having him back in the fold, and, and Richard Pettis really can't talk about it enough, is going to make a huge difference for this football team. They have other things that they still need to address. Sure. This is not a, a be-all, end-all fix for the Buffalo, but it is going to make a big difference having that level of playmaker to go alongside Alvon Isaac. It sure helps. And the, you mentioned the quarterback uh, has more options to throw to, but do we know who the quarterback is? Danny Bidding did a lot of the work last year, but he may not be the guy coming into the fall. Yeah, Patrick Harding has been the guy in the spring, and that's you know partly because Danny Bidding was playing baseball, but I think it's going to be an open competition. I don't think that Richard Pettis has made up his mind really about anyone other than Alvon and Q uh, being in their starting position. Those are easy decisions. Yeah, obviously. Uh, but I think that you know he's going he's gonna to wait and see which of these two guys is more ready, more effective by the time the fall comes around. They'll have seven on seven in the summer. They'll have a lot of workouts, a lot of time to see these guys in the same environment, see them compete against each other and see who's more effective. And it's, it's interesting. Patrick Harding has been really good this spring. Danny bidding has been with the baseball team. So he hasn't necessarily gotten to see what his competition looks like, but I'm interested to see if having some true competition will bring out a little bit more in him, especially after, you know, kind of a rocky season last year. Yeah. And I guess the other theme is, that the the Buffalo need to get bigger. <laughs> yeah, I, certainly. You look at the the lineup of that team, and you know, especially with who they played in their spring game, Union County. That's a very physical football team, and it kind of exposed how much the Buffalo were lacking for size. So the weight room is going to be super important. You have a lot of guys that you know. There's only a certain capacity that their frames are going to hold. A lot of guys are going to have to play bigger than their actual dimensions to bring this team some success. They're going to have to learn to block bigger than they are, learn to run bigger than they are, uh, and they're going to have to you know do the work over the summer to to get to that point. Learn to play extremely physically. I think that there's a coaching staff that's equipped to get them there, but obviously. The the kids are the ones that have to put in that work. And so if they want to be successful, if they want to improve on last season, which I think everybody on that roster does, they're really going to have to spend a lot of time focusing on that this summer. Turning to Wildwood football, their spring game was Thursday night. They only have one third of last year's roster back, but a very surprising, sur surprisingly, I don't want to say easy because nothing necessarily is, but a very lopsided score when they went to Hernando. Yeah, 54 to 7 over a Hernando team that uh, was a lot more experienced, has a lot more size, certainly. And I have to say that I was surprised. Vince Brown Sr. admitted to me that he was a little bit surprised at just how well they played, considering how many young players they had, given the quality of opponent they were playing, the the, the mismatch in terms of that size, and for them to go out and you know kind of work through some things early and get into a rhythm that quickly. For a lot of guys whose most recent playing experience is Pop Warner, it was a really impressive showing. And so I don't necessarily want to say they're ahead of schedule because there are still a lot of things that they have to do. They're another team that has to spend a lot of time in the weight room this summer. There's a lot of guys on that team that have never had a varsity or a high school level weightlifting regimen. So that's going to be a shock for some of them, I think, <laughs> when they get into that locker room or into that weight room with Vince Brown Sr., who's, uh, who's going to put it on them pretty heavy this summer. Um, but I, I think that it was – 
both surprising and encouraging to see the kind of showing that they had, the confidence that they played with that you know, Coach Vince said he could see from the time that they got out there. He said, you know, there were some moments where you could see they were kind of thinking while they were on the field. And by the end of the game, though, a lot of guys were, were moving more naturally, were playing with that confidence that you would want from somebody starting on a Friday night. And Wildwood's calling card for the last however many years. Forever, uh, basically. Yeah. It has been big plays and four huge plays, 40-plus yards in this game. Yeah, and that's something that they've always kind of relied on. Just get the ball to the playmakers because they're always going to have them. But when you've got Trey Brown, Lorenzo Simmons, Tyrese Keeler, these are top-flight athletes. I mean, these are legitimate um, high-end athletes, not just for 1A, for anywhere. And so if you can get them the ball, get them the ball in space especially, you're going to end up being successful. And that's something that Wildwood has never wanted for is someone who can make plays on the offensive side of the ball. And the guy that's getting them plays in space is Taylor Keeler. Two-year backup, now it's his show and good for showing. Yeah, absolutely. 248 yards, I believe, for him, four passing touchdowns for Taylor Keeler. And that's, uh, again, a really good showing for a guy who had never taken the first snap of a varsity football game before and again like we said the the whole game with Wildwood is get the ball to the receivers it's a I don't want to say a simple thing to do it's um, you know a relatively direct mandate there's a yes <laughs> you know a, a reasonably low bar of competence that you have to clear to be successful as a Wildwood quarterback but that said it is the hardest position in sports there is a certain amount of mental game that goes into it even when you have that kind of talent around you but uh, Vince said that he was really impressed with how he controlled the offense how he managed the flow of the game how he bounced back from some mistakes especially early on and really managed to to stay in it and keep making the plays for the team so I think that that was extremely encouraging to see because we really had no idea this was a, a big question mark we knew that at least to start it was going to be Taylor but we didn't know what we were going to get out of him because we've only seen him in very very limited amounts up until now so that was a great start for him and I'm really excited now to see what he can do over the summer you know kind of settling into that role getting a little bit more time because he's also been doing track and field right up until uh, after the regional meet so he didn't get the full spring with the team either so I'm excited for a summer of seven on seven for him a summer in the weight room and seeing what he looks like come fall looking ahead to the summer it is the final week of competition the track and field was for the uh, current school year and now we look ahead to summer we look ahead to fall uh, lots to go on with football but uh, you know, certainly especially with Wildwood and even with VHS uh, some encouraging signs coming out to uh, look forward to in the fall. That'll do it for the first segment of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. When we come back, Drew and I will talk a little bit of golf as the second major of the year goes to a very familiar name right after this. Big Game Brooks is back at the top of the leaderboard at a major, something that we expected for a couple of years there, and it's been a couple of years since we expected, but one of the best golfers in the world is still one of the best golfers in the world, and he showed it. A big win at Oak Hill in the PGA Championship. Jeff, 66-66-67 out there for Brooks Kepka. Nobody shot rounds like that over the weekend. Certainly nobody shot three rounds like that over the weekend. 
We talked about Brooks Kepka after the Masters, uh, a rough finish for him after leading for most of the first three days. What do you think it was that allowed him to get by it? What was a really tough course for a lot of other guys this past weekend? Well, Kepka is one of those players that does play his best golf when the course is tough. But I think what he took most away from Augusta National was to be back in that kind of crucible, you cannot play safe. He admitted that he was not aggressive enough early in the round at Augusta National, and that allowed John Rahm to catch him and put pressure on him. So immediately from the get-go at Oak Hill, he was in that mode that we need to get a couple more birdies early in this round. We need to stay ahead of Victor Hovland. We do not want Victor Hovland to be catching up. He went out and made three birdies in a row on the front nine. Now, they were countered by a couple of bogeys, but it is Oak Hill. It is a major championship course. But I think that mindset allowed the situation where Victor Hovland could not gain a lot of confidence. It was still a matter of what am I going to have to do to catch up to this guy? And Victor Hovland tied for the lead only for like about a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. He put a birdie in on number 14 and then Brooks put his birdie in on top of that. And the lead was still one and Brooks just never let him in. And then Hovland had the unfortunate situation in the bunker at 16 where he got no elevation on it at all. And it plugged at the base of the face. And uh, essentially it was ball game after that. Yeah, it ended up being a double bogey for Hovland and Brooks birdies, and that basically slammed the door. It was, you know, like you said, a tie game for a minute, a one-shot lead, and then just it felt like moments later just out of reach for uh, for Vic. So uh, Kepka manages to put it away. That's his um, that's his fifth major before the age of 34, and we talked about him a couple years ago as this guy who was just storming through these major events. He was the biggest golfer in the biggest games. He was always up to the moment. And then we had some injuries and then we had some questions about his game entirely. And then he goes to LIV and we were wondering if he didn't think that he was ever going to be competitive like this again. And now we've seen over the course of this major season that Brooks Kepka is, it seems 100% back. And it, it took three plus years to get there because the downfall of Brooks came not long after he won the 2019 PGA championship he had a situation where he wound up shattering his kneecap and dislocating it in in the process and in the in the process of pushing his kneecap back into place not realizing that it was shattered he then created ligament damage and that ligament damage was far worse than he was to let on uh he's only really spoken about it this year how how significant it was we all knew it was significant but in terms of the details and kind of the gory details of the process so the surgery to get it back no wonder that there was some talk about Kepka having to walk away from the game because his knee was just not responding. But new type of surgery, uh, a type of surgery to put the stitching in a different place, take some of the pressure off the knee in the golf swing. And all of a sudden, he started working his way back last year. You could see it a little bit. He won over in Saudi Arabia toward the end of the LIV season. He didn't necessarily have the fastest start at LIV, but you could tell at LIV Golf Orlando, only two bogeys over 54 holes. That's the type of major game that Brooks Kepka has, and it almost won a green jacket 
it won another Wanamaker trophy. Yeah, and you know, really cool to see him back in that position. I, I have to admit, I kind of thought of Brooks as a villain for a long time, but throughout this arc, it has been interesting to, to watch him come back, and we all live a good comeback story. Uh, Scotty Scheffler is a guy who has been on top for a while now. He finishes tied for second. Um, finished with a, a strong round on Sunday 65, one of the best rounds of the weekend. Yeah, and he just started too far back yeah. on Sunday. The old running out of holes situation. And uh, I think that obviously he played a solid week of golf, but he did not have that run like Brooks did, 66, 66, 67. Uh, it only came at the end for Scheffler. And when you're starting, I believe it was six shots back, five or six shots back, the way Brooks was playing, he was not going to allow you enough opportunity to get back into it. But Scheffler goes back to number one in all of the world golf rankings and uh, and uh, certainly uh Still the man to beat, perhaps, when you get to the L.A. Country Club. But I think it'll be interesting now. We have a kind of a new triumvirate because Rory's fallen off a little bit now. But we we still have Scheffler. We still have Rom. But I'm going to throw Brooks Kepka into that category now. Yeah, it's an interesting one just because we're only going to see him two more times this year on the PGA against the other top golfers in the world. So, uh, unfortunately, that triumvirate really only has a couple more chances to compete. Another question that's going to be really interesting for Zach Johnson. Are you going to, it may not even be in his hands because there is a PGA Championship automatic qualifying points list that Brooks Kepka is second on now behind Scotty yeah. Scheffler. But if it came down to it, would Zach Johnson make the captain's pick to include Brooks Kepka? If he's not an automatic qualifier. Yeah, I'm not sure what the what's going to end up happening with that, because there's been all all these discussions about, you know, keeping guys off the Ryder Cup teams for both Europe and the United States that defected to live. And um, yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Certainly there. I think there'll be some drama there uh, for sure. It's not an automatic thing for yeah. uh, for Zach Johnson because the PGA of America controls the right. U.S. side of the Ryder Cup. It's not like it is on the European side where it's the DP World Tour that has the control there. And so when Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter and those guys resigned from the DP Tour, now they're out. But the PGA of America has left that door open. But the pressure is now on Zach Johnson if Brooks Kepka is not an automatic qualifier. Yeah, and of course he was... Was part of that team just a couple of years ago that performed so so well so uh you know hard to from a just from a pure golf standpoint hard to think that you wouldn't put him on the team but obviously there will be other pressures from I'm guessing a number of places on Zach Johnson to make a decision one way or the other uh the other big story of the weekend of course was Michael Block one of the cool things about this event is you get some of the PGA tour uh the PGA teaching pros out on this tournament and Michael Block I mean, as great as Brooks Koepka's weekend was, arguably had the best weekend of anyone in golf so far this year. I think that he did receive bigger cheers than than Brooks Koepka. Yeah. That's nothing against Brooks, but, but Michael Block is now a cult hero. Uh, not only making the cut, but being in the top 10 really until the final nine on, on Sunday and just performing well when he's paired up with 
Justin Rose when he's paired up with Rory McIlroy, a lot of teaching pros. And I had the chance to sit with Mark Verkey at the North-South Classic on Saturday. And uh, we spent more time talking about Michael Block than we did about Brooks Kepka or Scotty Scheffler or anybody because those type of pros, they have a lot of talent, but they never get a practice. Uh, Michael Block said, maybe I get to hit one bucket of balls a week because I'm out teaching. I'm sure his price has gone up. It used to be $150 an hour. Uh, but if you're ever out at uh, Arroyo Tribuco in Mission Viejo, California, that's where he teaches. But uh, so many of those guys just don't get a chance to go out and, and hone their own game. So for him to uh, turn in that type of performance to finish top 15. He doesn't have to go through the qualifying process next year. Yeah. He's already in the next PGA championship at Valhalla. Well, and I saw that he's got an, uh, an exemption to next week's event as well. And I, I also mean, for the Canadian open in three weeks. Yeah. Uh, really, really awesome. What's going on for him. And you know, who knows how sustainable it'll be. He can go out, miss all the cuts for the, the rest of his career <laughs> career, whatever he has left as far as playing on the tour here. But I mean, just an incredible weekend. And you mentioned his his rate might be going up. It would have taken 2,307 of his lessons to make what he did this weekend. <laughs> so all around, pretty good time for Michael Block out there at Oak Hill. And, and he said it was the most surreal week of his life, particularly that moment at 15 where he not only aced 15, he jarred it on the Absolutely fly. Absolutely dunked a hole-in-one. Yeah, incredible moment. Just, he's playing with Rory McIlroy at that point, and Rory's cheering for him and everything like that. I can't even imagine the euphoria of that moment uh, for Michael Block. Block described it so well. He said, there's a big cheer coming over from over there, and I'm thinking, hey, that's a big cheer for a guy that hit it within 10 feet pretty cool and then McElroy walks over and gives him a hug and and Block is thinking to himself Rory McElroy just walked over and gave me a hug for putting it on the green and it finally occurred to him to ask Rory did that go in yeah and so and then when Rory said yes it did his first response was no way yeah real really surreal moment so and really cool to watch it was a fun story to follow all weekend it was fun to see him playing and it was awesome to to see him maintain it a lot of times you know in sports we'll see that sort of underdog that out of nowhere come up and you know for a short stretch if he'd played really well Saturday or Friday um, Thursday Friday made the cut and then fallen off Saturday Sunday would have been like oh, okay well that was a fun story but to see it through all the way to the end the way that we did was was really really gratifying and really enjoyable uh, we also had the NCAA Women's Championship this weekend Stanford Rose Young who we've mentioned on here before becomes the first in history to win back-to-back individual titles in the NCAA. That's why I wanted to make sure it got mentioned. Uh, this is a historical moment. No woman has ever won back-to-back NCAA individual titles, but this is the kind of talent that Rojong is. This is the kind of year that she is having. That was her eighth collegiate win this season. That ties the NCAA record set by a pretty good name, Lorena Ochoa, yeah. who is in the <laughs> Hall of Fame. Yep. And that eight does not include Rojong's a win at the Augusta National Women's Amateur, which is not a collegiate event. So uh, a really strong year. I would have to expect that this will be Rose's final year in the amateur ranks and that we'll see her on the LPGA. Uh, we'll see a lot of sponsor exemptions for her over the summer, I think, but I think she'll have her card by next year. Yeah, that would not be a surprise at all. And we've got a, a busy week in golf coming up, so lightning round, Jeff, run through <laughs> what we
we've got across four tours coming up this weekend. Yeah, it really is. We'll start with the PGA Tour. They're back in Texas at the Charles Schwab Challenge. Uh, they tee it up at Colonial. That is the longest-running site on the PGA Tour that doesn't host a major, i.e. Augusta National. But uh, Scotty Scheffler's going to be there. Jordan Spieth is going to be there after making the cut and, and playing decently on the weekend uh, with his injured wrist at Oak Hill. Uh, Jordan Spieth has four top two finishes there, including a win in 2016. And as you mentioned, Michael Block gets the late sponsor exemption. It was kind of funny to watch that video, too, because he takes the call from the tournament director at Colonial, who says, we want to offer you a sponsor exemption. And it just so happens that his boss at Arroyo Tribuco was sitting next to him. And he looks over at his boss and he says, I think I'm going to have to miss next week. Is that okay? (laughs) So Michael Block in the field at Colonial. The LPGA, it's their week of bracketology, the Bank of Hope match. Play. They're at Shadow Creek in Las Vegas. Un G is the defending champion there. Brooke Henderson is the top ranked golfer in the field. She missed last year, but she's back. But it's apparently a tough spot on the LPGA schedule because Nellie Corda, Lydia Ko, and Minji Lee are all skipping this event. But uh, uh, so I guess we'll have to put uh, Brooke Henderson in the category of prohibitive favorite for this event. Uh, LIV is back in action. So Brooks Kepka and all of those guys do not get to uh, relax very much before they head off to Trump National DC. Not only is Kepka there, but four others who finished among the top 20 at the PGA Championship, including Bryson DeChambeau, who tied for fourth, and Cam Smith, who tied for eighth. And then the senior major, two weeks after the last senior major, with a regular major in between. But uh, the senior PGA Championship goes to PGA Frisco. This is the home course of the new PGA of America headquarters that's going up outside of Dallas, and it will be the first big event for PGA Frisco. And uh, Steve Stricker, uh, two weeks after winning the region's tradition, highlights that field. Obviously, we'll have Bernard Longer as he tries to get that one more win to break Hale Irwin's all-time champion's win record. The defending champion is Stephen Alker. How was that for lightning round? That was was pretty (laughs) impressive, Jeff, I'll be honest. Even with the notes in front of you, I was was amazed as you were running through all of that. So, uh, yeah, like I said, a lot to cover this weekend. We'll talk about all of that next week here on the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. So, uh, be sure to come back if you're interested in any of those tournaments coming up over the weekend. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Village SC and the Buffalo's upcoming season right after this.
it's always soccer season if you have an international interest, but uh, TVSC, the Villages Soccer Club, uh, opens their season this weekend as we head up on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and Drew, you uh, are our expert at uh, the Villages SC, and this is a year that perhaps the Villages SC comes in with a little bit more of an attitude, perhaps, as they uh, get ready to uh, start the season and reclaim, they hope, the Southeast Division title. Yeah, there's a lot of motivation in this club, both internal and external, because last year's one of the only years that they did not win the Southeast Division. They've kind of gotten pushed off their corner as the dominant team in the division by Nona FC, who came in last year, immediately started a rivalry with them and swept them only the second time ever that they've been swept by a team in a season. Uh, so there's there's a lot for them to you know kind of prove, and they had one of their worst offensive seasons ever last season as well. There was a lot of talent on that roster, and they couldn't score the soccer ball. And we talked a lot about it last year, different factors, some goalies who just played out of their minds against them, and sometimes when they just weren't taking enough shots and uh, some other things that came into play with that. And so they really want to get back out there and prove with a lot of returning players that they're better than what they showed last season, or at least what the results showed last season. It's a team that went head-to-head, toe-to-toe with a team that went all the way to, I believe, the quarterfinals of USL League 2. And so, or I, actually, I believe North Carolina Fusion may have actually been in the national semifinals. So I, I, this is a very motivated group. It's a team with a lot to prove, and I think they're excited to get out there this Saturday and start proving it. And you kind of mentioned off air that uh, they have taken the teams from the last two years and essentially made a best of team for this season. Yeah, if you were to give Anderson De Silva the last two years rosters and you know you eliminated a couple of players who you know aren't aren't going to come back, but if you were to say make a starting eleven out of these last two years rosters, he would have ended up with something close to what they have this year. So I mean, just starting from the back, you've got Niklas. Vitter and Nikolai Munch, the the two German Nicks. <laughs> they had to give a Brazilian nickname to one of them just to, <laughs> just to distinguish them when they're talking to and about them. Uh, but they've got them at both the wing back positions, and those guys were both awesome last year. They give you a lot of flexibility, both attacking and defending, uh, and they were outstanding. These are guys that are playing at you know high level college programs and are, are were getting scouts from pro teams last year. Uh, in your midfield, you're bringing back. Pedro Santos, who was a really, really good two-way midfielder a couple of years ago, was unable to play last year, but having him back I think is huge, not just from an on-field standpoint, but that guy is an emotional leader of this team. He's a motivator. He is uh, what Anderson DeSilva would call a quintessential Buffalo. He's one of those guys who kind of defines what they want their culture to be about. And then you're pairing him with Fred Ferreira and Takeru Moriyama, who never got to play together last year because Takeru uh, he had some, some issues with his um, his visa to, to stay here over the summer and ended up having to return to Japan unexpectedly. And Fred Ferreira was a player that they recruited to come in and take his place. And so now the two of them are going to be on the field together, both wildly talented guys, both hardworking guys, uh, also are going to be culture setters in the midfield. Uh, you're adding to that uh, up front uh, Lucas Mauro, who... 
uh, was one of their best offensive players a couple of years ago when he and Leo Paiva played together on the front wings were really, really lethal. And he's coming back after two seasons at UCF where he's helped them claim back-to-back conference championships. And he has just gotten bigger, faster, stronger, better all the way around. And having him up top, I think, is going to, on its own, solve a lot of their scoring issues <laughs> from last year. But you're also going to pair him with Fabio Amaral, who led the team in scoring last year with nine goals and I think 13 games. So you've got a, a couple of really, really good scorers up top that are going to pair well together. And I think that when you take that group, that is the core of a really, really strong USL2 team. Where did uh, Anderson De Silva have to go to maybe fill in some gaps that he didn't have from the all-star teams of the last two years? Well, the biggest question mark is going to be center back. We're going to see brand new players there. Yago Lopez is now retired. He is coaching. Uh, he's an assistant for the USL2 team. He is the head coach of TVSC2, the UPSL team. So uh, he is no longer going to be on the field. This will be the first time ever that the Villages SC will not feature Yago Lopez on a roster. So that's a big deal. Uh, Van Dyke Gao was back last year to play center back. Um, he's also not coming back. So those two spots are going to be question marks. I think Anderson is pretty confident that he's filled those sufficiently, but uh, it's going to be new faces, something that we haven't seen back there. There's always been the reliability of Yago Lopez and whoever you paired with him, whether it was a returning player or uh, somebody like Eric Anime, who was there for two separated years, um, or a new player, there was always confidence that it was going to work out because when you paired somebody with Yago, it was going to go well, generally. And they were, uh, even last year when they struggled to score, one of the best defensive teams in all of USL League 2. And so now this year we're going to have to see if they can maintain that kind of efficiency without him back there as that stalwart. How does the Villages SC see Nona? FC after what happened last year are they the team to beat or are they the team that we just have to reclaim the title from I think it's more the second one I mean obviously that game's going to mean a lot it meant a lot last year Nono got out to a hot start they started playing a week before the Villages SC did so they had a lead in the division by the time the Villages SC ever took the pitch and so they were chasing them all season long and it frustrated them because they're like we haven't even had a chance yet and then they get out there they lost to them Nona dealt them their first ever loss at their home field since it was built in 2019 and so that was a big deal losing at Nona was a big deal and both of those games were one that's that they felt like they could have had one had a lightning delay in the middle of it and they came out and if that game's 15 minutes longer, I think the Villages SC at least pulls out the tie because they had known on their heels and then they give up one goal uh, in a really, really hotly contested 1-0 match down in Orlando at Nona FC's facility. So, I mean, just a, a really, really great pair of matches that, you know, I think that they would argue that they got some bad breaks as well. The no, The first known FC game, one of them... One of the goals was conceded while Nikolai Munch was on the sideline getting evaluated for a concussion, which he did not have. And the other one was kicked out from under the hand of Jackson Lee, the keeper, and they believed should have been disallowed. But, um, you know, those are the breaks. And so they lost that one 2-1 with a furious comeback. I think they took something like six shots in the final nine and a half minutes or something like that, and five of them were on goal. And uh, they got one goal out of it and forced a bunch of saves. So, I mean, they were really pushing for the end of that one after that lightning delay. Um, And I I think that they felt like they were going to get it back when they went on the road to Nona, but when they lost that one, that effectively clinched the division for Nona FC. So not only were they not able to win the Southeast Division, but – they gave it up 
more or less, right. as they feel. So there's a, a lot of rivalry, a lot of tension between those two clubs. It's friendly. The coaches know each other. The owners know each other. Um, the coach of that team is Yago Lopez's best friend from childhood. They grew up together in Brazil. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of friendly competition, but also some very, very real uh, bitter rivalry feelings, especially on the side of the Village's SC after last year. And I would imagine that date's already long-circled. Yes. On the TVSC Absolutely. calendar. Absolutely. Yeah, they're going to play Nona twice this year. They're going to get them on June 14th, and I believe at home is going to be on July 8th. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see the first time they match up. That second time, I think, especially when they come to the Village's SC, that's late enough in the season that one of them could be icing out the other for a division title or effectively doing so. So that's going to be big. And those games mean more this year, not just because of the rivalry, but also because the division is split in two. There's not a wild card berth for the second-place team each half of the division is going to get one representative oh, wow. in the playoffs. So you have to win your games. They're not going to play SC Miami City. They're not going to play um, the team formerly known as the Tritons, um, Florida United, or I'm sorry, I'm blanking on some of these right now. But, uh, you know, they're going to play Nona. They're going to play Florida Elite. They're going to play Tampa Bay United, which have been, other than them, the biggest contenders for this division over the last few years. So they are honestly in the more competitive half yeah. of the division, it would seem, and all of these games now are coming at a premium. And speaking of Tampa Bay United, that's who the opener happens to be on Saturday night. It is a road game, not a terrible drive out to the campus of St. Leo, which is a beautiful campus, as we were kind of talking about yeah. off air. But uh, that is the opener at Tampa Bay United Saturday night. Yeah, just over an hour away if you're coming from our offices in Lady Lake. So if you're in the villages south of here, could be less than an hour for you once you get on 75. It's a pretty quick trot down from there. So uh, not bad at all for the first road game of the year. Again, these, because of the way that the division is split up, they're going to be a little bit more concentrated. They're going to go to Lakeland. They're going to go to Orlando. They're going to go to Pasco County for this Tampa game. Uh, and then really the only one that's really out of the way is going to be that Jacksonville game against Florida Elite, but they're going to get them twice at home. So uh, it's going to be... How did that happen? Well, they're going to play three times. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so somebody was going to get an, uh, a, a short end of that stick, I guess. But... Um, but yeah, it's going to be easier than ever to see the Villages SC on the road this year. And we probably should also mention that when you do see the Villages SC, it won't be at the stadium off 301. Yes. It will be at the Buffalo Ridge campus. Yeah, they're going to be at VHS, the current campus, soon to be the old campus. I guess technically with graduation happening, it is already the old campus. But, but it, the charter school has now designated two names for the campuses. The old campus, yes. quote unquote, is Buffalo Ridge, just so you know. And the new one is obviously going to be the Middleton yes. campus. So at the H.G. Morse range at Buffalo Ridge is where you'll see the Villages SC this coming season. Although this week they will hold an event. Uh, Thursday night, 6 p.m., they're hosting a Meet the Team event at their own facility. So if you want to get out, get an early look at the Buffalo, maybe glad hand a little bit with the coaches and the players, get to know some of them. 6 p.m., out on Highway 301, 17690, South U.S. Highway 301 to be exact, in Summerfield. You can go get your first look at the Villages SC if you didn't make it to the friendly last week. And that is which night? The Meet That's going to be Thursday night, 6 p.m. Thursday night, Meet the Team. Saturday night beat the other team yes. <laughs> at Tampa Bay United on the campus of St. Leo. But soccer season is on us, and we wish the Villages SC uh, the best uh, possibly that they can get that title back 
from Nona FC this year. That'll do it for the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. We thank you, as always, for joining us. Drew, thanks for sitting across from me as we talk all of our favorite sports. And uh, we thank you, the listener, for, for tuning in every week. So whether you get it on Spotify, Google Play, wherever, download us, like us, rate us, whatever you feel is necessary. But we do appreciate you joining us each week. We also appreciate the people above us that let us do this podcast, being Nick Feely and Chris Siegel. And we look forward to even more as we head into the summer on the Village's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. That'll do it for this week. And until next week, we'll catch you on the playing field.